Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Hi, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you today? Good. Nice to speak to you today. We're going to be ships in the night for the next month or so, I think. I know. What are we going to do? It's like um, we'll have to have these sort of regular check-ins where we just pretend we're podcasting and talk about a story just so that we don't miss each other too much. Exactly. We've managed to successfully tag team our holidays really well this summer so that life can continue at Open Book HQ, but it does mean we won't see each other for quite a lot of the month. And then we'll get to August and we'll be living in each other's pockets during the Edinburgh Book Festival. So, Well, that's how Open Book began, isn't it? We were living in each other's pockets at nine years ago at the Book Festival, probably 10 years ago, actually, now that I think about it, in the Book Festival, which is when we had the idea for Open Book. I think once we stopped for our holidays in July, and in, in the, back in the day, the office used to shut for the month of July, and then come back full gusto preparing for the Edinburgh Book Festival. So I don't think much changed on that front, has it? Now the programmes out there will, will uh, be d- dipping into... Um, some of the authors that are appearing on our holidays, I guess, and uh, taking some of those books with us to read while we're away. Yeah, and all the information about the ways that we'll be involved in the book festival this year are in the newsletter and we'll we'll be drip feeding any more information about what you might be able to see across the weeks. But definitely look out ways that Open Book is involved in the book festival and ways that you can just pop in for free and join one of our shared reading groups there as well. And and I'm really looking forward to the three workshops we are running. But for now, it's the beginning of July. Kids have just come out of school. That's left me with only two left in school and two away from school, which I can't believe it. And our story today by Anne Hay called Guerrilla Tactics touches on school, doesn't it, Claire? Yeah, for sure. And Anne's a great friend of Open Book and a great supporter. So we're absolutely delighted to have one of her stories um, to feature on the podcast today. Yeah, I recommend her poetry to you as well. Okay, will I get us started? Yes, please. Guerrilla Tactics There were two kinds of rules at school. Get caught breaking them, even if you didn't know them, and you could find yourself punished. There were classroom rules. Don't talk in class, don't pass notes, don't answer back, and so on. Mr. Wallace in his black gown spotted with chalk marks and a leather strap in the depths of his long pockets, had a habit of throwing the wooden blackboard duster at anybody who didn't look deep in study. Sometimes his aim wasn't good. Ellie learned to keep her head down and look absorbed in multiplying vulgar fractions. Music was a problem, as she'd never managed to make the lines and blobs turn themselves into a tune. Sometimes the teacher put a record on the ancient record player and told the class to prove they were listening by running a finger along the score, keeping up with the music. Luckily, Ellie sat beside Jillian, who had piano lessons, and copied what she was doing. Mostly, she learned to put herself somewhere else, to shut out the knocks and threats and small humiliations. When sun streamed in from the high windows, Dust particles swirled in the light. She could watch this for hours. There was a separate list of unspoken rules in the playground. Share your sweeties with your friends. Don't clipe to the teachers about anyone. Take turns in games. The punishments, being sent to Coventry, being gossiped about, being shoved into the hedge, 
with its cocktail stick twigs that scarted your arms and legs. When it came down to it, it was your friends who protected you, who made you laugh and made school bearable. If you'd any sense in your head, you kept these rules. Trish had been Ellie's friend since primary one. The friend in the same street she'd called on and who'd called on her to come out to play. From the first, she'd learned to be wary of Trish's moods. Trish always insisted on choosing games. Trish lost interest in Monopoly if she was losing, and once threw the board in the air, showering them both with greenhouses, red hotels, paper money, and a metal top hat that pinged Ellie's head painfully. When Ellie's mother was pregnant, Trish told Ellie some mothers died in childbirth. Ellie's parents were always telling her she didn't stand up for herself, but never explained how you stood up to someone a head taller and a lot heavier. One day in primary seven, Trish, with her face red and a scowl on it, said, I'm going to beat you up on the way home from school. What for? Just cause. It was part of the general weirdness of life. Ellie sifted through her options. One, fight back. Too small. Two, sprint out as soon as the bell rang at the day's end. Too flat-footed to run fast. Also, the teacher thought it was rude and sometimes held people back as punishment. That would mean Trish could lie in wait behind the hedge. The answer came to Ellie by chance. In the cloakroom area, a hundred identical navy blazers hung in rows. Each class allocated a separate row. Ellie had dropped another blazer on the floor in her hurry to grab her own, and about to hang it back on the peg, noticed the name tag. Patricia Fraser. Then she found her body doing something surprising. She hung Trisha's blazer on a peg four rows away. Ran off. For a whole week, she hid Trisha's blazer at the end of the school day. The time it took Trish to find it gave Ellie the start she needed to get home safe. She arrived home on Friday to see Mrs. Fraser standing at her front door. Ellie's mum stood in the doorway, arms folded across her chest. Ellie's stomach felt like she'd been forced to eat school macaroni cheese. Her legs trembled. Trish was scary, but her mother was worse, prone to the same outbursts of rage, but in a bigger body. Ellie swallowed down the sick feeling and walked towards that murderous expression. The air turned to jelly and slowed her legs. Goodbye, Mrs. Fraser, she heard her mum say. I'll deal with my own child, thank you very much. Mrs. Fraser looked like she wanted to spit in Ellie's face, but just looked up to the skies if asking God to explain to her the awful burden of children and pulled her hand back farther up her left armpit. Get inside, said Ellie's mother, and the door slammed behind them. Tell me what this is all about. Shall we start there? Yeah. Trish, doesn't seem like Ellie's making the best friendship choices, I would say. 
I feel scared. Literally, I'm not sure who I'm more scared of. Trish, her mother, or Ellie's mother. (laughs) No, poor Ellie. It's easy to say that you're not making the best friendship choices, but I think for children like that, often the friendship choices are made for them. And Ellie seems very much outside of this, doesn't she? Yeah, it doesn't strike me as that Ellie's chosen Trish or is the kind of character to have chosen Trish if Trish is the one who rings the bell and asks her to come and play. Yeah. And you can imagine if she's a quiet child, the mum would be delighted that she's got a pal, right? Yeah, and they're in the same street as well, so. I love that expression of she doesn't know how to stand up for herself. Yeah, and she, she also feels like she goes through life as a warrior. I mean, the, the first couple of paragraphs where she talks about being in school and the steps she has to take, you know, keeping her head down and, you know, sitting beside the girl who's good at music. Feels like poor Ellie is a worrier. Yeah, well, and especially when she's come up with a list of options about how to deal with, you know, the threat. The real sense of, of Ellie as an observer in this. It's interesting because she she says that one of the rules is, you know, you take turns in games and... But then she goes on to tell us that, or Anne goes on to tell us that Trish always decides the games. So, you know, that doesn't sound like, you know, she's getting much choice. When our kids were little, you know, we'd say, okay, well, you want to play Monopoly and you want to play Scrabble. So how about you have one game Monopoly and then, you you know, you do turn about That's that usual kind of parenting of not everybody gets their shot all the time, but also you do it in turn about. But it doesn't sound like that's what's happening. But it does sound like Ellie knows that that's how it's supposed to be. And I wondered what the scent to Coventry means. That's um, a British thing that um, you just don't speak to a person. It's a horrible, horrible thing that kids will do is that the whole class will decide that they're being sent to Coventry and and so they'll not speak to them. If they speak, they won't answer the questions. It was banned in my school. You were not allowed to send anyone to Coventry when I was little. But you can imagine, you know, a small child saying, does anyone want to play X and being ignored? Or worse, I guess, having backs turned to you i guess here's a question though i mean that's absolutely true for small children but how old do you think they are because reading music is not something you'd ask a young child to do i think it would happen in a secondary school environment as well you know someone's sort of ostracized a bit from the group if they're perceived to have done committed some or broken some rule and then poor ellie well the question is it's funny to me that trish is the kind of child who would look for her blazer because in our day and age, you know, kids come home with someone else's blazer. Just can't be bothered to look for it. Yeah, but we've got to factor in the Trisha's mum factor. Oh, that's true. That's true. So maybe she knows if she comes home without her blazer, she'll be in big trouble. I wonder too, though, if it's the idea that, okay, the first time you go for your blazer and it's not where you expect it, you're like, oh, that's a bit odd. And you do look for it because you want to make sure that it's not been taken by someone else or whatever. But then once it starts happening again and again, it almost becomes a bit of a challenge to find it or a bit of a game or, you know, you're aware something's going on that you want to get to the bottom of. Yeah, and obviously she's gone to her mum about it. So she knows someone's doing it to her. The first time it's like, oops, and the second time it's a kind of, hang on a minute. And obviously what I mean is, you know, I'd love to think of Trish as just a pain in the neck, bully kind of girl, but she's obviously wobbled by it because she's gone to her mum about it rather than just sorting it out herself or whatever. So now she's broken that rule of clapping. But so, you know, I was, I was going to say that, you know, I remember my dad saying to me once, you know, there are two sides of this, of every story and the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. And I wonder 
not to disparage Ellie, who I have a lot of time for, but I wonder if there's another side to Trish that we don't see. You know, there always is when it comes to children. Yeah, nothing's ever as straightforward as it might first seem. But Trish does a pretty good job of putting herself forward as being quite objectionable. And also that Ellie is a child who's struggling, I think. Yeah, she's definitely seems to be a little girl that worries about things and wants to please wants to do the right thing because otherwise why would you keep playing monopoly after the board had been showered she or thrown stand in up for herself i know but there's a bit of her that maybe wants to have a friend and you never know in small schools and others you know sometimes there just aren't opportunities for friendships so shall we read on and see what happens to her okay shall i read the next next section yes please ellie took off her satchel hung up her blazer putting off the moment she'd to walk into the living room and face things. The baby was crying in her cot, and her mum went to lift her and plonk her down on the floor with bowls and spoons to play with. Have you been hiding Trisha's blazer? Her mum's been at the door because she's been late home from school all week, and this is her excuse. Tell me it's not true. It's true. Sometimes telling the truth was the simplest. Her mum let out a harassed sigh. The baby was crawling towards the fireplace. Well, it's got to stop right now. Yes. Ellie could only manage one word. Something in her was frozen. She put herself somewhere else. Oh, look, I know what that woman's like. I sent her away with a flea in her ear. But the girl, you know, she's difficult. But, but there are things you don't know. You need to not do stuff like this. It's not how we brought you up. If you're going to fight, fight fair, not sneaky. Understand? Yes, she didn't. Later that night, when he came home, her father sat her down on the sofa. Why did you do it, Ellie? There was no punishment, but this was worse, him being gentle. She couldn't find words. He lit a cigarette and was distracted by a flake of tobacco on his tongue. There was a long silence. There you go, you're right. <laughs> to be kind to Trish. Yeah, I think often the adults know more about what's happening behind the scenes than children do. There's nothing more frustrating as a child, though, than feeling that your parents are keeping something from you and you're getting half the story. Yeah, I quite often now will say to my children, rather than give them some detail that they don't need, look, there's a lot happening in that house, you know, maybe just cut that person some slack. And that seems to like kind of cover all the possibilities rather than burdening them with information they don't need or wouldn't be able to manage. But I think even then that's quite hard as a child because you're confronted with what you can see. And if it's someone being awful to you, it takes, I think, a fair way into adulthood to be able to temper someone's behavior with what you might see otherwise and I think there's a little bit of me that thinks that you know there's some behaviors that can't be excused or shouldn't be you know yes you can cut people slack yes you can um allow things to slide off that you might otherwise call out but there comes a point in which you think no sorry nothing you know gives you permission to be like that or say that or I mean and I don't think Trish has ne necessarily reached that threshold but there are 
occasions when I've sort of seen people behave badly and knowing that things are going on with them and thought, yes, I know that, but that doesn't give you the right to make it hard for somebody else. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, her mum's advice is good advice, which is if you're going to fight, fight fair. So I think more than anything, she's encouraging her to be straightforward. You know, sort of, if you're angry with someone, say so. If you're going to fight, then do something that feels like they can fight back. But doing something that they can't do anything about is not fair and not right. So it's not to say you can't be angry with people. And as you say, you know, there are things going on in all our lives, you know, some of them worse than others. But as you say, sometimes that almost all the time that doesn't excuse very, very, very bad behavior unless it's a mental health difficulty, you know. And and then the only advice would be to steer clear so you're not making it worse. It's really hard. I, and I do think it, over the years, my children have had run-ins with, not, not not like this particularly, but, you know, with children giving them a hard time who I know have got a lot of ill, really serious illness or other things happening in the house. And it's really hard to know what to say except, you know, try and give them more rope or just stay away. You know, if you if you find that you're inflaming that person or the friendship isn't working, the best thing you can do is not to keep staying in there and being dramatic, but to back away from it. But I don't know how Ellie's going to, you know, because I that line that she didn't understand is, I don't know how she's going to cope with that. And I worry that Trish will still f- punch her because exactly. her, her mom, <laughs> I'm still worried for little Ellie. You know, if I, you know, yeah, I'm worried that Trish is the kind of kid who come after her, knowing that her mom will back her. And certainly will bear a grudge. So the fact that she's had a week of avoiding being beaten up on the way home. And now she has a reason to say she punished her, you know, because Trish is hiding her coat. So, yeah, I worry that that's, that's never a good resolution. And it, But it also shows me that sometimes the adults can't fix it, you know. We think we've fixed it, but actually I think that's the moment your children realize you're not a god, you know, that you can't actually fix what's happening out with your sight for them all the time. You can advise them, but ultimately those are the kind of first steps you take towards adulthood, trying to parse your way through these things and realize that no matter what, they come out the other end anyway. I love that line about there's, you know, your parent being gentle is worse than punishment. I think there's a lot of truth in that though. I think Ellie's mum sounds sensible, which is to deal with things straight on. Whether it's, you know, trouble in the house or trouble at school, that's the best way to manage things, I think. And I like the way she just take her, took her straight in and sat her down. And the fact she sent Trish's mum off with a flea in her ear. And didn't let her in the door. I quite like that too. So it's a it's a tough balance though, isn't it? To back, to back your own kids and also acknowledge that they might have, you know, they're not angels. <laughs> None of them. I liked as well how she asked for, like she, she hadn't come to the discussion with her mind made up. She asked Ellie you know, took Ellie's opinion into account. Yeah, and I like the way she said, I'll deal with my own child rather than, you know, because it sounds like from the sound of that woman, she might have given Ellie an earful on the way in the door as well. I don't know. I'm I'm sorry Trish is having a hard time, but I still don't like her. No, me neither. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's our judgment cast. Exactly. Thank you, Anne, for for sending your story to us. Yeah, and we'd love to hear what you guys out there think of Ellie and Trish. I suspect we've all had an experience like that. Um, yeah, and if it reminds you of your own school days. Will we swap over to the poem? Yeah, let's. I think we've got one from Hannah Lowe today. So Hannah's poetry in her book called The Kids has won the, both the Costa Poetry Book Award, but also the overall Costa Book Award for the year. So we're really delighted to be able to read her um, poem, The Only Black Girl, today. Thank you so much, Hannah, for letting us have this poem to chat about. Okay, here we go. The Only Black Girl. The kids flicked names at her like Ludo counters. 
not just for being black, but for living, like I did, the wrong side of the tracks. No million quid mock tutors in Forest Gate or Ilford. Scrounger, Jew girl, sponger. But Natalie was a fighter. A what you call me, poke and puncher. She smacked and shoved her way into a tighter crook. The office, where a gang of teachers caught her, and that was that. Then later, when some mother or the other saw my dad parked up, I caught a blow or two. Oi, pick and mixer, white wog. But I had skin the kids forgot, and none of Natalie's fire. There was no wallop or slap in the hands I clenched inside my pockets. Yeah. A different kind of bullying, really, there, isn't it? Yeah, an exclusion and somebody being put on the outside. And on the outside in so many ways. I know Hannah's poems in the book, and we'll get back to this one, but talk about kids who are on the outside for various reasons. And there's a, a remarkable one about about the kid f- who's from Britain, because everyone else in her class isn't. Even though some of them are born in Britain, they don't consider themselves British and he's the only British boy and he has to carry that, you know, the kind of carry the weight um, of that. And it's a, it's a remarkable poem for the inverse of what you'd expect necessarily. And I think here it's that question for, because Hannah's father, and she's talked about it at Stanza this year, is Jamaican Chinese and her mum's uh, white. And so she said herself, she's somewhere in the middle. And I think you get that in this poem. Yeah. Really strongly, and that sense of being neither one nor the other, being other in a way that no one else is other. Yeah, exactly. You know, having skin that people forget is a beautiful image. It's a really strong image, that one, isn't it? Because it's interesting because I think it can go both ways. You know, as someone who has, you know, a white parent and a brown parent, sometimes it goes the other way in the sense that people don't know where to place you and they find that really uncomfortable. And so in some ways, weirdly, they will, in my experience, will pick on you a bit more until they get to the bottom of it because their brain just doesn't know where to, which box to put you in, especially when you talk with an American accent (laughs) um, outside of America. So yeah, people just forever needing to get to the bottom of it. And so that idea that skin the kids forget is interesting because I wonder if that's almost generational, that kids don't actually care. They're looking for the ones that stand out. And in my head, by the, time, by the time you get to adulthood, people are trying to figure out which box. Because I, di- I didn't get trouble for it in, when I was younger. Um, certainly not as much trouble as I get now. So when, you, you're talking, when you're younger, you're talking about in your teenage years or when you first moved from... Yeah, as soon as we got rid of the accent. So when we moved from Iran, my brother and I had accents. Um, and he had a very strong one because he was a couple of years ahead of me in school and a bit older. Um, and he got a terrible time when we arrived in the States uh, for being Iranian. But also it was in the middle of the Iran hostage crisis. So of course kids were going to be, not of course, but kids were horrible to him. Yeah, and not truly understanding what's happening, but just picking words and forming opinions based on based on what they could, what their parents saw in the news or whatever. But but I think once he, once we um, accomplished the accent without even knowing it really, but it accomplished the accent. It all pretty much went away. You know, we didn't get very much grief for being Iranian, but I think we also did a really good job of hiding it if we could. 
So, but then as an adulthood, I think we want to figure out where people are from. You know, we want to know where to put you. And even I think within Scotland, you know, the accents are so shifted. People want to know whether you're West Coast or East Coast or, you know, and I do that too. You know, if I hear someone with a Glaswegian accent, I know exactly. And that's true, I suppose, across Britain, accents are really important. But I do think adults are more interested in figuring, kind of pinning you down before they rest, you know, into your company in a way that I'm not sure kids are. If they find a way of including you, they will, you know, and just move on. But I think it's the ones here are picking something. And in this case, it's maybe living on the wrong side of the tracks as much as anything else. But it never ceases to amaze me when we're out and about and we're different places doing things together, the number of times you're asked, where are you from? Yeah. Like it seems such a, an innocuous question, but also at the same time, it's just so loaded. You know, I feel yeah. like sometimes feel like jumping in front of people and going, hey, do you want to know where I'm from? <laughs> <laughs> I might do that the next time if it's appropriate. It's actually the follow-up that's harder. Because if you say, oh, well, you know, I grew up in the States, they'll say, Anna, but where are you really from? You know, and actually, and I know that's become a cliche. And I guess it's a cliche because it's true. You know, I mean, uh, I had someone say, you can't, you know, you can't say that anymore, people. That's just become so cliche. And I said, yeah, it's a cliche because it happens all the time, you know, and it even happens to my kids who've never lived anywhere else, really, which is, I think in some ways is harder because at least I have an answer for that. But it is that second question that's the the harder one. Um, so I'm, yeah, that idea of being mixed, I think is for me in some ways, I mean, I don't have the experience of not being mixed, but I think that is, has its own whole subset of complications. And I wonder, you know, I love the way Hannah writes about it here because it's like, no one's really clear, no matter what, you know, you're going to get picked on if you're not really clearly within a category. And that what saved Natalie was that she was a fighter. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and that worries me because, you know, you just think, well, is that the only thing that's going to save you is being a fighter? Do, are we all called to be fighters? Is that your only option? Yeah, because Lord knows <laughs> I'm so non-confrontational. <laughs> I'm not a fighter. Um, but it doesn't really save her, does it? It just puts her in more trouble, in a different sort of trouble, yeah. you know, and, and gives her, has her tarred with a different sort of, you know, people make a different sort of assumption about her equally is loaded with difficulties. Yeah, and it kind of, it makes me think about, you know, um, those who think that, you know, if you've had the privilege of a education that's similar, say to, to white, white students, that you aren't deserving of any special support. And I think that's just not true. I think the truth is, in stories like this, and stories of many people that you and I know, is that you have to get through despite, you know, lots of these little questions about your, your sense of belonging or your, um, whether you're okay to be there. And, and I guess on some level, we all have had those experiences going back to Anne's story, you know, at some level, many children have had experiences of being picked on or, or given a hard time. But in this case, the child doesn't have any option except to be who they are and maybe that's true for Ellie maybe Ellie doesn't really have an option but to be who she is which is not someone who stands up for herself I don't know but I always wonder you know about those questions um for children saying well you you went to a really you know I, th I think of friends being told you went to a really good school and you know it's fine but actually the truth is they probably got a little grief like this or a lot of grief and I think you're right though as a child 
find yourself getting grief for something or other. I'm thinking, I mean, I mean even myself, I, my source of grief was being a SWAT set aside from people who didn't academically either want to or were able to move through the system in a way that was expected. So, And I wonder, you know, I'm just thinking about the, t- the many teenagers we have between us and whether that's just part of that sense of growing identity is um, setting yourself apart from other people. And the, the unkind way to do that is to kind of other the people around you and make it, you know, that whatever it is you are is the thing that everybody should want to be. But I, it's almost like a weird developmental tick that you have to figure out your identity in opposition to the people around you, or certainly as separate from the people around you. And that's one thing, but when it comes to unkindness, you know, I worry that when you get a kind of gang of people doing that, and when you pick on something like skin color or background or wealth, something that a child has absolutely no control over, um, they're really up against a corner. You know, that idea that that tighter crook uh, in her poem is also a metaphorical place where children are when they're kind of othered for any reason, really, not just race or socioeconomic reasons, but for any reason at all. And that language made me think of a shepherd's crook and the way that a shepherd will be sorting through a a flock of sheep who on the face of it all look similar, but pulling out for whatever reason with his crook round the sheep's neck, certain sheep that don't fit in or, you know, are different or are not quite right. Yeah, yeah. And I think in some ways it's the children that are the sorters of that. Yes. I love this language at the end of the poem too about, you know, there's no wallop or slap in the hands I clench inside my pockets. You know, there's no question here that the eye is upset and hurt and and furious if you're clenching your hands, but not a fighter. I was going to say, I don't love that image of not being able to fight as the answer. I suppose this is a way of fighting back, isn't it? You write the poem. The other thing that, yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's interesting is that the it's the mother here that sees the dad parked up. It's not a child, mm, you yeah. know. And so, in in that very, you know, two lines, really, we get quickly the idea that it's generational. You know, it's not necessarily the children that are seeing you, but the mother's spotted a father who's different and things. All right, that kids, you know, fill in those blanks and then it's come through the children and I don't know if you've seen that little film um, and it was produced by an organization that was I think it was combating racism and it was children who were three or four appearing on the screen with each with a friend and to the adult eye the children had very obvious distinctions between them so skin color there was one pair that one was in a wheelchair and one was not um, there was another that was blind and the other was seeing. Um, and when the children were being asked to say what was different about them and their friend, it was things like, well, he likes ketchup and I don't. You know, he'll jump off the top diving board, but I'm too scared. You know, and it was a really sort of powerful reminder that children are not born with these stereotypes and these prejudices that they pick them up from somewhere and just what you were saying about you know your brother in during the Iran crisis you know and the children that give him a hard time hearing things from home yeah I'm sure you know and um 
And there's nothing you want more as a child than to fit in, I think. Weirdly, you know, I think we then spend the rest of our lives trying to, you know, self-identify and make ourselves separate from others. But as a young child, I just remember, and I, and, and I put my hand up and say, it could be because of other traumatic experiences, but, you know, I just wanted to blend in. I didn't want to stick out. And I think that's a caricature trait. It's, it strikes me that Ellie in our story has that character trait as well. I just didn't want to be the one that was superlative at anything. You know, and I loved my pals. I didn't see that difference, as you say. So we're just maybe, I think there is something in this poem about that idea of it being generational. Not only are you cast by where you live, and that has nothing to do with you as a child, or your skin color, or your religion. Again, all things that don't have anything to do with you as a young person. But it's actually the mother here that's the reason that this child gets picked on, passing on the information that she's seen. So... Yeah, we need to get back to that three or four year old state where we don't need to put people in boxes and just say, ah, yeah, Claire likes the sea when it's wavy and I like it when it's flat. That's the differences between us. A uh, much heavier poem that we normally discuss. I have Hannah's collection now and it's made me, I just haven't had a minute. I'm saving it for my holidays, um, but it's made me want to go and dip into it. Um, so I hope if you manage to get your hands on a copy too, um, you get a chance to, to dip in and find this poem and, and some of the other sonnets that are are there. Yeah, and I should say they're not all as heavy, although that we loved talking about this one. They're not all as heavy as this. Lots of them are funny and you get a real sense of the characters of the young people that she's teaching. And I, I laughed as much as I went, hmm, in that book. So yeah, I can't recommend it highly enough. Thank you so much to Hannah for, again, for allowing us to, to read this poem and, and chat about it. You can find it and Anne's story on our website at openbookreading.com in this month's bumper issue. I think that's just about us for July. Thank you so much for having us in your ears. And we really look forward to being back with you in August uh, for festival season. Ooh, we're getting you all warmed up. We can't wait for that. <laughs>